What's the secret to becoming a millionaire? Welcome to Common Sense on the Prairie, a podcast dedicated to helping you demystify the sometimes complex topic of money. I'm Adam Cox, Head of Wealth Management for the First National Bank in Sioux Falls. We're a community bank based out of South Dakota. In this podcast, we share expert insights from around the country and stories from our local community to arm you with the tools you need to make better financial decisions. Because the truth is, the more we talk about this stuff, the better off we're all going to be. Welcome to Season 3. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Sarah Stanley Falah. Sarah is the co-author of The Next Millionaire Next Door and the founder of DataPoints, a behavioral assessment advisor tech company. DataPoints created the industry's first assessment of wealth potential based on The Millionaire Next Door. Her research on psychometrics and financial psychology has been featured in conferences and publications, including Financial Planning Review, Industrial and Organizational Psychology, and the Journal of Financial Services Professionals. Sarah received her PhD in Applied Psychology from the University of Georgia in 2003. Most of us don't make a million dollars a year, right? But does that mean we can't accumulate wealth and enjoy a future free from money concerns? Not at all. In today's episode, we're going to talk with Sarah about what a millionaire next door is, what it takes to save money today, and learn more about financial psychology and why it's so important to wealth accumulation. It was an absolute pleasure learning from Sarah, and I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did. Sarah, welcome to the pod. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. All right. Let's uh, get outside of your bio a little bit. Start with an icebreaker. What kind of music are you into? Yeah, that's so funny. Um, I am stuck in the late 80s, really the <laughs> middle 80s and early 80s. Um, but that's just for fun. Really, um, I, I write, like all kinds of music, uh, with the exception of country music. Sorry. You don't like country. I don't like country. So you're talking to a guy from South Dakota. Yeah. So and I went to the University of Georgia, and yeah, all my roommates yeah. and friends, and you know, they all loved it, but not me. Not you. No. Couldn't convert you. I know. <laughs> I love Dolly Parton, though. I'll, I'll, oh, well. I'll listen to her anytime. Who doesn't? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Awesome. <laughs> Well, all right. Let's uh, let's talk through the your background here a little bit. Um, let's start with Millionaire Next Door. Obviously, one of my top three favorite books. You then updated that book. So, walk us through the background of the book, how you got involved in that work, and uh, and kind of where that's led you in your career today. Right. So, you know, my father wrote The Millionaire Next Door back in the late '90s, uh, or published mm-hmm. it in the late '90s, and. Um, at the time, I was in college, about to enter grad school, um, really wasn't too interested in the work that he was doing. Um, and again, his lifetime of, of research really looked at affluent populations in the United States. Um, I was much more focused on psychology and understanding why people do the things that we do. Um, and so I pursued a degree in industrial psychology and worked for a company that created and implemented assessments. So personality tests, things like that for, um, you know, Fortune 100 companies, for example. And later in my career and, um, you know, in, in working with him and maybe just growing up a little bit, recognized that a lot of the background that I had coupled with his research could make for some really interesting future research or even assessment products that could help people understand themselves when it comes to money. So that's part of the work that I ended up doing. Um, okay. And then he and I collaborated on a new book, The new, the Next Millionaire Next Door, which really kind of 
looked at the data or looked at new data uh, 20 years after the fact. Um, and so that's kind of how I got involved. Um, and we had different uh, different perspectives. Mine, of course, my background was in psychology. His was in marketing research. So um, it was going to be a great kind of match. And we were really excited about that. But then, of course, he passed away in 2015. So we weren't able to finish that work together. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so that's kind of how I got involved and, and where I am today. All right, Sarah. So when most people think about wealthy people, they tend to think about designer clothes, you know, nice cars and, and big homes. But your work in this area has shown that's not really what most millionaires look like. So can you describe to us what is the millionaire next door and what what do they look like? Mm-hmm. Right. You know, I think a lot of us uh, grow up thinking the brands and things that we see are um, truly indicative of someone's net worth or their wealth. And, and in fact, it's often the opposite. Um, it's often just that they're using their income to, to purchase all those things. But yeah, so the millionaire next door is really someone that is able to transform income into wealth. And um, per- certainly when my father was doing this research back in the you know, 80s and 90s, that looked a little bit different than it does today. Um, a lot of the individuals that he studied were um, small business owners. They were, or they had, um, you know, kind of modest salaries, but they used different tactics to transform that income into wealth. Whether it was being frugal or, um, you know, running their household like a business, all those mm-hmm. kinds of things that allowed them to do that. They tend to, uh, and, and even today, they tend to be ones that can ignore what their neighbors are doing. Um, they, they certainly do not um, follow trends and things like that. Uh, they have their own goals and they're really focused on them. And, and that's, again, something that we continue to see today when we look at uh, millionaire next door type populations. So has the, that millionaire next door, have they changed appreciably? Since the late 90s to today? Well, you know, I think that a lot of, you know, because of technology, because of social media, because of the cost of certain aspects of our life, like education, things have changed. Um, Job titles have changed. Even in our most recent research, um, when we looked at millionaire populations, their, um, their income had increased pretty significantly from the original research, that kind of thing. Of course, you know, that that was 20 years ago, right, that that happened or, or plus now. Um, but uh, generally, they again they have these sort of behavioral characteristics or personality characteristics, even if you want to call them, that are similar across time. So even if their careers and job titles and um, you know businesses that they own change, they tend to have the same um, again characteristics that allow them to build wealth over time. Okay, what are some of those characteristics that help them build that wealth, even if even if they don't have a, an incredibly high income? Yeah, so a couple of things that go into that, again, were talked about in the original book. So being frugal is one of the ones yeah. that we see consistently. Um, that that kind of characteristic of being economical with your resources, whether that's your finances or your time, um, it's really one that distinguishes those that can build wealth from those that simply spend what they make. And we see that, again, whether we're talking about high-income earners or um, again, those with modest incomes. And that the reason for that is based in personality. So uh, what we know from research and psychology is that 
those that tend to be really conscientious, which is one of the sort of big five factors of personality, those that tend to be attentive to details and they follow through on that, what they say they're going to do, um, those folks tend to have higher net worths than those that tend to be a little more scattered or disorganized and things like that. So, so we know something like frugality really differentiates those that can build wealth from those that maybe struggle with it. Um, another characteristics characteristic is confidence. So those that tend to be really thoughtful and and feel good about the way that they manage their financial lives, um, they tend to believe in themselves when it comes to achieving financial goals. Uh, they also tend to be um, those that can transform income into wealth. So in the book and in some of the work that I've seen you do, you've got this really interesting concept of the different kind of accumulators of wealth. So you've got on one end, prodigious accumulators of wealth, which is just a great, great phrase. And then you've got average accumulators of wealth and, and then under accumulators of wealth. What makes a prodigious accumulator of wealth different than an average or an under accumulator of wealth? Well, it really is their ability to take some of that income and uh, again, put it away and put it aside and save it over time. And again, what differentiates people that are able to do that include some of those behavioral characteristics that we talked about. Yeah. Um, other things include just simply plan- spending time planning and things like that. Um, but typically, prodigious accumulators of wealth uh, tend to have a higher net worth regardless of their age and income than others. So that's kind of what makes them prodigious accumulators of wealth. And uh, again, so if we you know, look, in, look in your neighborhood or across your peer group and you can think about those that maybe have the same level of income, the same age, but yet one of them has a really high net worth and it's most often because of those habits and those behavioral characteristics. And there's a formula in the book and I've seen you use as well um, that shows what kind of accumulator of wealth you are. Can you talk through that formula a little bit? Then selfishly, I want to know, is that for everybody at every age or does that <laughs> hopefully right. skew a little bit closer to retirement? Right. Yep. Yep. So again, that was something that uh, my father first talked about in The Millionaire Next Door, uh, which is age times income divided by 10 is your expected net worth. And so if you take your net worth today and you minus or subtract, I should say, that that expected net worth, um, that will provide you with kind of where you are. And, um, you know, again, what we do in our research is we divide those groups up into quartiles and we look at, again, the top quartile, and that's your prodigious accumulators of wealth and, and under accumulators of wealth are in the bottom quartile. And that's, you know, where those differences come from. Um, but in terms of who that that formula really is applicable to we know we know that those that are younger just starting out um, it sort of overestimates or, or you know it, it puts them behind the eight ball so to speak all the yeah. time um, and so it does seem that that formula is is a good rule of thumb but it's probably more applicable to those that are nearing retirement or those that are older okay Whew. good so I, right I can feel a little bit yeah, better it makes about myself feel better right yeah. yeah. <laughs> Good. So uh, I'm interested to get your take on this. I feel like the longer I've been in this business, the more I've learned about accumulation of wealth and that it's not just about having a high income. Um, It's actually a lot to do with our behaviors. Is that something that you've seen as well or do you agree with that? 
Yes, I mean certainly it's 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 those small everyday choices, you know, coupled with the large choices that can lead to wealth accumulation over time. Um, again, we we think about it from a behavioral perspective and in that sort of a competency perspective um, at data points. That's kind of how we measure whether someone will have the characteristics required to build wealth or if they need coaching and things like that. So again, it includes things like what we just talked about, being frugal, being confident, um, ignoring what everyone else is doing. We call that social indifference, which sounds a little bit harsh, but what it really means is that you're just able to save and spend in a way that's aligned with your own goals versus those of people around you. Um, So it, it certainly is the behaviors, it's the choices that someone makes regardless of their income that allows for wealth accumulation over time. Sure. So speaking of that, social indifference, is that what the, the phrase was? Mm, yes, yes. That's fantastic. We we talk a lot uh, on this show about keeping up with the Joneses. And that's mm-hmm. by far been our most popular episode is um, an episode where we explored kind of that phenomenon. Millionaire, millionaire Next Doors to me seem to be incredibly good at ignoring the Joneses. Mm -hmm. So, Mm -hmm. which for me feels like a superpower in this day and age with our consumption culture and social media that stokes those flames. So based on your experience with this group, like what is is it about that group that they're able to tune out the noise better than, than most everybody? You know, I think there's probably a couple of different things, a lot of which came from probably their background and how they were raised. But it, of course, it, it includes our, our DNA. So there's a nature and nurture component to how we can sort of ignore what's happening around us, if you will. Um, and I, I agree, it is a superpower, particularly today with yeah. uh, social media. So imagine now, instead of advertisements with famous celebrities, you essentially, with social media, have... Um, recommendations from your friends and family right there, which can be extremely powerful um, and extremely um, influential in in terms of what you end up doing. So yes, despite whether we're talking about the 1980s and our neighbors around us just living and who's driving what car and things like that, um, or if we're talking today about what we see on social media, it does seem that those prodigious accumulators of wealth are able to block out that. And it it certainly is a a superpower. I do think it's often because they are, you know, motivated and focused on their own financial goals and they recognize what those goals are. So that's part of it. Um, And they they don't want anyone to stop them. And that's often why they're business owners as well, because those same characteristics uh, play into being a successful business owner. Sure. That makes sense. Um, while we're talking about the Joneses, what should we know about them? Do you think they're as well off as they seem to be on social media? Well, it's hard to know, right? That, that's yeah. the whole point is that, um, you know, someone with a relatively modest or even, let's say, moderately high income uh, can spend all of it and, and will look as if um, they are very well off. That's easy to do. It's very easy to purchase things, certainly, you know, even thinking about cars and and houses, loans and things like that. Um, But at the same time, you know, again, and this is maybe a point where, uh, you know, I I think people might argue with me. It it is the case also that that those that accumulate wealth may also just simply want to live in a certain neighborhood. And there's nothing there's nothing wrong with that. So 
it's kind of hard to know if someone is really well off in terms of their wealth or if they're simply spending that way. And, and I think that's another reason to ignore it because you, you don't know. Um, and we, we have to teach that lesson to our, our kids too, who, you know, yeah. drive through the parking lot of their high school and see, you know, cars nicer than I ever drove um, <laughs> in my whole life. And yeah. want to know how how in the world can these families afford that? Well, again, some of them may have super high incomes. They may be attorneys or doctors or you know tech folks, um, but at the same time, they may not, and they may not have anything saved for retirement, or they may not have anything saved for their their college education for their kids and things like that. So it's really um, it's important to ignore it because you really don't know what's going on behind the scenes. Yeah, and the other thing that we always seem to discount or forget too is. A lot of people get family help, and you don't see that as well. Exactly. Um, and I think that that's certainly something uh, my father was uh, attuned to, particularly when he was studying um, and having focus groups and interviews with really high income earners. Again, back when he was doing a lot of the research, um, you know, it was enlightening to, to hear some of the stories, particularly from the under accumulators of wealth, of how they were. Um, subsidized. So a lot of the spending was subsidized by their wealthy parents. And again, you know, you just don't, you don't know that. Um, It's it's very unlikely that your neighbors are going to disclose that to you. (laughs) Right. They don't seem to advertise that. Yeah. Um, Sarah, what is financial psychology? Yeah, it's a really relatively new field um, in the world of psychology. It is, you know, the kind of the application of methods and, and procedures or techniques from psychology to the world of both personal finance as well as financial services. So thinking about clients and planners working together, for example. So it really has two aspects to it, kind of how I manage my money and, and all the things that go along with that. And then, you know, if I'm working with a financial professional, how that relationship sort of unfolds and the help that I'm getting and, and kind of the match between the client and the advisor. And I think that's an area that is, um, it's so needed, you know, especially, you know, as we think about financial advisors and from our side of the, the coin, we've always talked about the number. We've always talked about what's your goal in financial terms and try to, it's like a math problem. We're always trying to figure out. But lives are messy and people have a lot going on and they want to know things like, am I going to be okay? That's mm-hmm. not a, that's not a number answer. Mm-hmm. You know, you, that, that doesn't solve that. So I'm ex- really excited about this field kind of growing and expanding. I've had, you know, Morgan Housel and Daniel Crosby on the show recently, and they've talked a lot about this too. And the feedback I get in those episodes, and it's just been like, oh my gosh, I, I had no idea of how these things were impacting my personal financial life. And it's, I applaud the work and I hope it continues to expand. Yeah, it's really interesting too. Um, several years ago, uh, a group of financial psychologists or, you know, who kind of came from a financial therapy and clinical and counseling psychology background petitioned the American Psychological Association for a new division on financial psychology. Um, there are 54 divisions of the American Psychological <laughs> Association, and not one of them deals specifically with this area of financial psychology. There are a lot of kind of, you know, there's consumer psychology and um, industrial and organizational psychology dealing with the world of work and things like that. But it's to me, it's 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 
really eye-opening that there's not a s- specific division um, focused on studying this because, as you said, it's it's very important. It really sort of our personality dictates the way that we're going to make decisions about our finances, and so um, it it is uh, crucial to understand this as part of the work that you know financial service folks are doing as well. You mentioned personality. What role does personality have to play in wealth accumulation? Yeah, you know, personality is kind of a broad term. So it is really our, um, you know, kind of a combination of characteristics about ourselves that can make sort of make or break our financial plan, certainly, but also impact day to day decisions that we make about saving, spending, and investing. So Again, I mentioned earlier that conscientiousness is one of those big five components of personality, and that's really kind of our detail orientation and things like that. But there are other things to think about, like agreeableness. That's kind of how kind we are. Um, Just again, FYI, if you are very agreeable, you tend to be the one that wants to pick up the check or you don't want to say, I don't want to split the bill. And that can be really challenging um, when you're trying to accumulate wealth. Um, there are other areas like emotional stability. So how, you know, how fearful or anxious we get, that can really play into how we make investing decisions um, and things like that. So there are a lot of different components of personality that are important to understand that do impact the way that we make financial decisions and ultimately reach those goals too. Sure. What about our backgrounds? Does that play a role in, in our uh, wealth accumulation journey? Yes, there's a lot of exp- a lot of research out there that demonstrates the importance of life experiences in terms of how we make decisions today. So we know from research that we've done um, here at Data Points that maternal, for example, frugality and um, your your mom or again a maternal caregiver's kind of emphasis on career development actually predicts things like income level and net worth in the future. Um, so we know that those life experiences are important. We recently partnered with Brad Klontz, who's a financial psychologist. He um, created uh, the money scripts concept and sure, that particular yeah. assessment, which helps uncover sort of these underlying beliefs about money that are often developed during, again, during childhood and adolescence and young adulthood. So again, they can really play into the way that we make decisions today. But it's it's crucial to understand that even just from a self-reflection perspective. And then certainly, again, in the, in the, con- in the context of a planner and an advisor. And to give yourself some grace too. Right. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. So what do young people need to know about wealth accumulation today? Is, is, is the dream still alive? It is still alive. We know that individual doesn't really matter where where you are today. If you are someone that can um, be frugal in terms of your spending decisions and build knowledge and become confident and ignore what others are doing around you when it comes to spending, we know those factors predict net worth regardless of your age or income. Doesn't mean you're going to turn around tomorrow and be a millionaire. Uh, but it certainly means that you're on your way. And um, I think that, you know, a lot of things aren't certain in life. We don't know what kind of job we're going to have in the future. Um, You know, we don't know if we'll have help in the future from anyone, from government, parents, whoever it might be. Um, But again, when you kind of look at the research that underlies building wealth, you know that some of those key behaviors will ultimately help you in the long run. Sure. 
tell me a little bit about data points and the work that you're doing today. Yeah, the work that we do today at Data Points really focuses on understanding clients' personality and and applying financial psychology in the context of the client and the planner or a coach, for example. So we've created behavioral assessments that uncover a client's personality so that the both the client and the financial planner can really help understand where that client might be challenged to reach a financial goal. So for example, if you have a great plan in place, that's fantastic. But if the likelihood that you're going to follow it is really low, you know, what's the point, right? And then um, we also look at things like investing characteristics. So what is it going to take for this client to actually maintain a position regardless of what the market looks like and what their portfolio valued, you know, how that declines and things like that. So that's really our focus, again, sort of blending the research that my father began um, with the kind of science of psychometrics, which is measuring those unseen characteristics about clients. That's really what we do at Data Points. Awesome. Sarah, this was fantastic. Thank you so much for doing this. And uh, just as a plug here, your book is, you know, fantastic. And uh, this work, when I, you know, this will tell you a little bit about me. Um, I first read your dad's book in high school because that's how cool I am. <laughs> and uh, the work that you do and the work that your father did um, is been foundational for me and it's been um really really just a journey of learning about myself and how i think about money and how other people think about money and now in my role as how our clients think about money in process has been been fantastic so for those listening out there or watching that haven't read this book please do yourself a favor and read the book it was absolutely fantastic so thank you so much for uh for being on the show and i really appreciate it thank you so much for having me i hope you found this helpful If you did, please subscribe and share with your family or friends. If you have a topic you want us to cover in future episodes, send us a note through our website. And if you're at the point where you want an expert opinion on your finances, reach out and we'd be happy to start a conversation. And remember, any comments, insights, or strategies discussed on this podcast are intended to be general in nature and therefore may not be suitable for you and your situation, whatever that may be. Before acting on anything we discuss, please consult with your attorney, CPA, and or your financial advisor.